As you're seated, if you would, please open to Galatians chapter 3, and we will read verses 10 through 14 and begin studying these wonderful words of God this morning. We echo Pastor Kyle's words of, of appreciation for each of you and your love for the Lord and His Word and even for people like us. We appreciate you and love you, and we are here to hear what God would say to us in Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10, which is this, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Father, wonderful words of life are your words. God, I pray that you would have your word declared and it would sink into our minds and our hearts, Father, and that you would have your will done within each person who can hear these words this morning. Lord, my words stumble and my words fail, but your word will last forever. Your word is true. God, I pray that that's what we would hear, we would know, we would believe. In Jesus' name, amen. We live today in what many people call the information age, uh, the digital age, the age of technology. Some people see changes coming, but one of the great challenges in this information age is finding good information, (laughs) isn't it? We've got access to so much information so often, so continually that it's difficult to tell which information is good, what's correct, what's right, what's rightly understood and, and interpreted, and what should I act on, what's real, what's fake. Which of the history books tells me the truth about what happened? Where should I go to find out the truth about what is happening? And if I can't be sure of any of that, how can I ever trust anything that tells me what's going to happen? You can almost understand the struggle for people today that leads them into the postmodern idea that, well, you know, there's truth, but it's only your truth. It's only what, what matters to you, what you believe, the, the truth that's true to you. And you can start to sympathize with people. In all this information that's constantly at our fingertips, where is the truth? What's the truth? Is there truth? You can almost understand that, except that we have access to the truth. And it's correct, and it's right, and it's clear right here in God's Word, the truth of the Word of God. It it gives us the most important information about what happened in the past, about what is happening now, and what's going to happen in the future. And it's been questioned, it's been challenged for thousands of years, but here it stands, unchanged and still true. But there's so much confusion about what it says. Out of all the information we have access to, so much of it is questionable, it's unclear, and it changes. We have God's Word that never changes. It's clear and it's trustworthy. But recent research shows that in this age of information and confusion, 
We have work to do so that other people, even ourselves, can understand what this word is saying. In the U.S., we have access to the word of God like no one has ever had access to, the, to God's words in history. Uh, we can get it and we can read it instantly in our own language on demand anywhere we are. According to the Wycliffe Global Alliance, not just English, but any of 736 different languages in the world have the entire Bible translated for us to be able to read it. And in our own language, <laughs> there are estimates. We can't really be sure. There are at least 50 different English translations or versions of translations in the English language of the Bible. Or if you talk to some and, and research all of the projects that have started and haven't finished and just part of the New Testament or, or revisions, all of those things, it could be closer to a 900 different English translations of the scriptures or part of the scriptures. But it doesn't seem to have cleared anything up. Recent research reveals that among U.S. adults, 73% believe in a place called heaven, but almost 4 out of 10, 39% think you don't even have to believe in God to get to heaven, let alone Jesus or sin or repentance or forgiveness of sins to get there. 27% of people in our country don't even believe in a place called heaven. Where would this information that's not true come from? Well, it doesn't come from the scriptures, even though we have the clear, trustworthy word of God like no one else before us has ever had it, there is still confusion. There's no understanding of what it says if they hear it at all. It's estimated that across the world, there are six billion Bibles in print. And every year in the U.S., 20 million Bibles are sold. Every year. According to the Research by the Christian publisher Lifeway, 85% of U.S. households have a Bible. Now, we might expect, even with all of those statistics, all of, all of that information that, that people have access to, we might expect, okay, there's going to be some confusion because of just not reading it. Maybe the Bible is a, a doorstop, or maybe it's something that's on display in the home and it's not actually read. But among professing Christians, there is still some confusion. Shockingly, among those who profess to be Christians, over half say that any really religion can get you to heaven. 58% of professing Christians say that different religions can get you to heaven. I know that there have been some people who have gotten upset at us that we've mentioned different religions in our worship services and, and comparing and contrasting to the true gospel that differs from every religion out there. But this is why it's so important, because in the church there's confusion about what the gospel is, about what heaven is, how to get there who God is, who Jesus is. And we need to bring clarity among all of the confusion out there because the confusion is terminal eternally and it's devastating in the life of people as we float around this sea of confused information. So we've been studying Galatians together and I hope and I pray that this truth of God's word has been made clear to us and, and that we've understood it more. It was very clear to Paul as he wrote this and he was trying to clear up the problems that the Judaizers had brought in among the believers because they were believing wrong things. They were confused about what was being taught. So in our paragraph here, Paul turns to the word of God, the Old Testament, to bring clarity. 
He says there are questions. There, there's confusion. You're, you're, you're missing things and you're not understanding. So again, there's clarity in the word of God. Paul turns to sola scriptura, the, the scriptures alone for the evidence for what we need to understand. And in our paragraph, there are two parts. That w- and we need both. We need both of these parts. And we're probably only going to be able to cover the first one this morning together, but we've got to understand so that for our own sake, And for the sake of others out in the world, we can bring clarity and the truth so that people can understand. Number one, verses 10 through 12, we see the bad news. The bad news. Now, the first three verses of our passage bring us through bad news that that many of us are already pretty familiar with. Why, you may be asking, why do we need to hear the bad news all over again? Haven't we learned it and heard it enough by now? And the answer, of course, is no. We haven't heard it enough. We've not learned it enough because we all here this morning in this room even still focus too much, too often on the law and works. We rely too much and too often on works of the law. You remember right at the beginning of our study through Galatians that we talked about 16 different gospel distortions that we made, we've made in the past and we make and we fall for even now. We talked about the add-on gospel where we just add the gospel on to our life with no true change. We talked about the self-esteem gospel where Jesus brings us the good news of feeling better about ourselves and and feeling better about life. The, The psychology gospel where sin is just called something else besides sin. The solution is medication or human philosophy. We talked about the expressive individualism gospel distortion where the truth is in you and you just need to learn how to express the truth, express yourself, and Jesus frees us to do this. We've talked about the prosperity gospel where you just expect everything to be good and easy and and I should be healthy, wealthy, and happy. The faith plus gospel distortion where we believe, but that's just not enough. We've got to make ourselves get over the finish line. We've bought into a cheap grace gospel where we get our ticket to heaven, our one-time response, and that's it. We don't worry about anything else. We've fallen at times for the positivity gospel. You don't think about the bad news. You don't talk about the bad negative stuff. Let's just make it all happy and rainbows and clouds. We've talked about the works gospel where you just try hard. You try harder. You be good. You be better and you work harder. The mysticism gospel where everything is just experiential. It's emotional. It's ethereal. It's not grounded in truth. We've talked about the ritual gospel that we've fallen for where we fall into habits. And we just feel better because we're doing these habits because, well, that's what we've always done. The legalism gospel where we have convictions in certain areas and not in others. And we feel really saved and sure of our salvation when we're doing our little convictions. And we get worried when we're not. And and we certainly question others' salvation when they're not doing our convictions. We talked about the intellectual gospel distortion where learning is good and it is good, but that's all that becomes, just puffing our heads up with pride and knowledge. We've talked about the community gospel distortion where the gospel brings us friends and we get to have friendships and we get to feel better and serve because we have people close to us. And then the social gospel where this world becomes the focus rather than the kingdom of heaven. These 16 different distortions of the gospel that we can fall for, that I've fallen for myself, we still fall into these traps and many others. We need this reminder and this truth because in, in case Paul hasn't gotten through to our hearts, through our minds and our ears, we have these verses and he bases his arguments on scripture, the certain, unarguable, indisputable scriptures. Here's what he says. There are three truths in the bad news. A, 
in verse 10, there is a universal curse. A universal curse. Listen to the comprehensiveness in this verse. He says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, there are times when the words everyone and all do not apply to everyone on the planet and all people everywhere. There are times where that's true. Even here, it's qualified. He says, all who rely on works of the law and everyone who does not abide and do all the law. But in this case, the qualification is applicable to everyone, every person, everywhere. You say, how? Because apart from the gospel, everyone relies on works of the law, works of a law of some type. You say, yeah, but it's not God's law. But all laws derive from the law of God written on our hearts, the human heart. Romans 2.15 says, Whatever, wherever there are rules or laws, it's because God's law is written on our hearts, on every person's heart. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong and justice and fairness, and all of us are relying on those ideas of right and wrong and rules and laws to keep things in order, and all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, we know that all creation was cursed by God in Genesis 3. We remember that because of Adam's sin. His sin brought God's curse upon the entire human race, and all creation is under the bondage of corruption to it because of our sin. It's, it's groaning. It's waiting to be set free. That's true for every person and, and all of creation, but also each one of us individually, individual people brings the curse on ourselves by our own sin. It's not just a curse in a general sense, but he says, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We each earn the curse of God on us. The curse, which is condemnation, it's doom, it's judgment for sin. We say, well, look, I want the, I want the blessing that Abraham had and the blessing that's supposed to come to us from God through Abraham to us. I, I want to be under the blessing. Why are we under this curse? Well, because he says, first, we do not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Do we know everything that's written in the book of the law, the Old Testament? Do we, have we memorized all of it? In fact, uh, people have gone through and they've counted the number of commandments in the Old Testament. There are 613 of them. Do we know all 613? It doesn't abide in us if we, haven't, if we don't know it like the back of our hands. Secondly, do we do it? Do we obey all of those commandments all of the time? No, of course we don't. We know that none of us is perfect, but why don't we? Well, it's because as we've talked about, our heart leads us astray. It's our heart that guides us away from God's word. If we would love ourselves less and love others more and love Christ most, we would never sin. But we instead turn that upside down. We love ourselves most, others less, and God least. And that is sin, and that leads to more sin. So all of us too often live by, we rely on the works of the law, and we are universally all people under the curse. The verse here that Paul quotes from is Deuteronomy 27, 26. And it was when the people of Israel were to come into the land, they were to divide in half, and God spelled out the welcome speech, <laughs> the interactive welcome speech to the land. He said, half of you go to Mount Gerizim and pronounce God's blessings for obedience in the land. The other half of you go to Mount Ebal and you pronounce God's curses <laughs> for disobedience. 
in the physical land. This one that's quoted here in Galatians 3 is the final one of those pronounced curses. It's the end of all of it. It's the summary for all of them. God's curse will come because of your disobedience. Now, people get convinced, well, that's just because God was mean in the Old Testament. He was just impatient. You know, that's just how God was. But that's not right because God gave them this warning as they were about to go into the land. And he said, I will kick you out of the land if you're disobedient, if you're disobeying and disobeying. And they did. They disobeyed and they disobeyed for years, for decades for centuries, for 800 years before he kicked them out. God was long-suffering. He was more than patient. But he delayed the punishment for them, the physical curse of moving them out of the land. He delayed that, waiting for them to repent. But the, the curse still stands, not just physically for Israel. We are all cursed by God's curse apart from Jesus. We're under his condemnation because of the judgment for our sin. The physical exile from the land is not the ultimate wages of sin. Romans 6.23 says, death is the wages of sin. This means what Paul's getting at here is that we cannot work our way to salvation. We, we cannot work our way. We're under a curse. Don't try to work your way and earn your way to God to be good enough. You cannot do it. It's a comprehensive universal curse. None of us is better than any other person. None of us deserves salvation. Now, just, just a spot of hope here, because we've just gone into this curse and the sin and the judgment that will come because of that. This is why, brothers and sisters, Jesus is so precious to us. Young people, when you stand there and you wonder, why are these people singing these songs again about salvation? This is why. This is why it's so precious, because of what we deserved. What we still deserve as we walk around in this life, and we're, we, we would be under the curse of God. We would be sentenced to death and hell forever, but, but Jesus, except for Jesus. And God is still long-suffering toward us. He's calling us to repent and to believe in Jesus so that we can escape the curse. And we'll talk about it in verses 13 and 14. But for us on our own, there's nothing we can do to earn anything other than God's curse. We're already under it. And it's because we do not abide by and do things, do all the things written in the book of the law. But it would be true even if we did all of those things in the law and we stumbled one time. We, we messed up one time. That's what James 2.10 2, says. Whoever should keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. You say, why is it that way? Why, why is it, if you just mess up one time, then, then you've broken the whole law? Because... That's what holiness is. That's what the purity of God is. And this is why God is just so unfathomable to us. I mean, he's so above and beyond what we can imagine or think because he, he never sins. Can you imagine that? We, we live a life of, Lord willing, 80, 90 years, 100 years, however long he has for us on this earth. And, and in that amount of time, all we do is sin and God has lived for eternity past. And he'll live for eternity future. And he has never and will never sin one time. He's pure. That's what holiness is. It's, it's not a percentage. Holiness is all or nothing. And, and I, I was trying so hard to think of a way to illustrate this. Even if we look at human beings aside from morality, we just think about, you know, the best that we can do in, in manufacturing things, in, in making things. Not, not something that's moral, just creating, manufacturing things where even there we can't be perfect. We look at this method, one of the lead methods for improving business processes. It's called Six Sigma. 
and it's, it's trying to improve quality and efficiency and process improvement and all of that. The, the, there's a concept in Six Sigma called zero defects. No mess-ups. And I looked into what that is because that sounds very interesting. And what zero defects means in reality is no more than 3.4 defects per million in what human beings make. Any more defects than that, you're not producing the highest quality of whatever it is you're trying to produce. And to try to get fewer defects than that would take so many resources in, in, in time and money and expensive equipment that it's just not worth it. We just can't get there. So even when we try to do our best in something, and it's not even about morality or ethics, it's just making things, we still can't hit perfection. Even in our food, and don't worry, I'm going to spare you the statistics and the details, but I started looking at the FDA website because I thought, you know, certainly with our food, the things that we put into our bodies to give ourselves nourishment that, that God has provided to us, certainly there we get it right. But the FDA has set certain levels of certain amounts of foreign matter that's allowed to be in our food. This is from the FDA website, quote, the FDA set these action levels because it is economically impractical to grow, harvest, or process raw products that are totally free from non-hazardous, naturally occurring, unavoidable defects, end quote. So again, I decided not to list any, but there is such a thing as an acceptable amount of, in our food, insects, insect eggs, insect filth, rodent filth, mold, rot, and even worse stuff. <laughs> like, I won't tell you what the percentages are in our food that's allowed to be there. If I told you, I mean, we're going to be getting close to lunch when we're over, and you probably may not want to eat after you... So don't look at the website. Don't, don't go to that. But just understand, that's not what holiness is. I mean, the best that we can do with our food, the best we can do with manufacturing, the, the best that mankind can do, not even in a moral sense, is far from perfection because holiness is no defects per million. It's no infestation, no blemish, no problems per pound or gram or ounce, and we just can't measure up. Here's a biblical understanding. If you would, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter... I'm so grateful for the, the men who've been gathering on Monday nights, the men who are, who are here and have been here on Monday nights, the, the ladies who have been here on Tuesday nights, just learning to study the Word of God, uh, learning how to, to think through and, and, and just be blessed by all the, the, the richness that God has given us in His Word. And... and, and it's difficult. You, you, you dive into the deep end and, and you just, you're swimming around in this eternal word of God about the eternal things. And we wonder, you know, God, why is this hard? <laughs> With our finite minds trying to grasp spiritual, eternal truth, it's going to be a little bit, sometimes more than a little bit, difficult. But men have been gathering Monday nights, women have been gathering Tuesday nights in this past week. We looked at a portion of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And we, we work through this, and, and this sermon from Jesus has been on my mind since we started Galatians. The, 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 what Jesus teaches here, what he shows us here, um, has been on my mind and just seemed like, well, since we talked about part of it Monday night and Tuesday night for the ladies, this seems like a great time. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's learn what Jesus says. And we can't go through the whole sermon, but I want to show you how Jesus reveals to us how our mind works when we start trying to go back to law. 
when we're relying on the works of the law. This is how we learn. This is how we teach ourselves and others to rely on works of the law instead of the faith that we're called to. And we need to see the wrong thinking versus the right thinking because that's what Jesus shows us. He says he begins in Matthew 5 by teaching his disciples the Beatitudes, who are those who are truly blessed, those who are in the kingdom of heaven, and and what does it look like to get in? Jesus teaches all of that. It shows the right heart attitude for those who enter the kingdom of heaven and the reward of blessing. He teaches them their new position in relation to the world, verses 13 through 16. They are no longer just part of the world. They are salt and they are light. But he says in verse 17, don't think wrongly about who Jesus is and what he came to do. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So what we talked about antinomianism, where you just throw out the law, that's out. Throw out antinomianism. We don't throw out the law or the prophets because Jesus didn't. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's fulfilling in every way the Old Testament. None of the word of God will pass away. But listen, this is what he says. This is important. He says, if you teach people to relax the law, whoever relaxes, verse 19, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Chapter five, verse 20, he says, I tell you, you want to get into that kingdom of heaven. If you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, you're right, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now that would have come down like a ton of bricks because in their mind, nobody was holier. Nobody was better. No one was more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. There was the most holy, most nearly perfect religious men in the world. If they're not good enough, how are we supposed to be better than them? Yes. <laughs> It would have struck them just like that. Their full-time job is being good and they can't do it. How are we going to do it? From here, Jesus doesn't soften what he says. He strengthens it and he explains what he means because the issue was that their teachers were relaxing the law of God and they were teaching others to relax the law of God. In fact, there were two major schools at the time, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. The school of Hillel said, you need to be obeying God's laws and you need to achieve a success rate of 51%. So you get the, the, the scale. And well, if your bad things outweighed the good things, well, you're in trouble. But if you just, by 51%, just over half, then you're okay. You're holy. <laughs> you've obeyed the law. The other school, the school of Shammai said, no, you know, you've got to be 99%. I mean, nobody can be perfect, but you better be close. You better get there. But both of them were wrong. Both of them were not even close to the holy standard of God's law. So Jesus gives six different examples of thinking wrongly about the law and relaxing it that these scribes and Pharisees had taught themselves and others. And each of these has a heading of something like, you have heard it was said. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Again, it was said. Those kinds of things. You see it in verse 21. You see it in verse 27. Verse 31, 33, 38, 43. He says, you've heard it was said. You've heard it was said. You thought it was this way. And he explains the true nature of the law. These mere men thought they were obeying the law because they had relaxed it. They had taken it back. They toned it down and they taught others to do the same. He says here, uh, they said, don't murder. And if you do, you'll be liable to judgment. That's what verse 21, Jesus says, they taught you. That's all you need to worry about. (laughs) Don't kill anybody. Let's just move on. Verse 22, Jesus says, but I say to you, 
the one who fulfills the law, the one who's explaining the law, who's not relaxing it, but bringing it back to what it was supposed to be in their minds, the one who's fulfilling and not inventing a new law. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, you've relaxed the law and the prophets. You've misused it. You've misapplied it. Why? Because you've made it easier to obey. You thought that all God cared about was not killing somebody? I mean, that's, that's a ridiculously relaxed version. It's the heart that brings about that action. In fact, it's the same heart that murders that gets angry with people and insults them and calls them fool. And in both cases, there's judgment coming for that sin. The teachers had relaxed another part of the law in verse 27. They said, well, don't commit adultery. As long as you do that, you're okay. Jesus says in verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course, that applies to women, to to men (laughs) as well. But the idea is they had relaxed the law. They taught others it's okay as long as you don't act on whatever comes into your mind. They were teaching wrongly and teaching people to think wrongly about the law. So Jesus came to fulfill it because we've been breaking it. Even when we thought we were checking all the boxes and we thought, look, I've got this law thing down. I've got all 613 memorized and I'm doing all of them. He says, you're not even close. The danger in our minds was convincing ourselves that we were fulfilling the law because we're relying on the works of the law. We're under the curse. Even when we think we're obeying, we're breaking it. And that goes for the next one, divorce. And the next one, making oaths. And the next one, getting revenge. And only loving those who are easy to love throughout the rest of chapter 5. Jesus shows us how easily it is for us just to convince ourselves, I'm good, I'm doing good. I've got this. I'm checking all the boxes. Jesus says you haven't begun to check the boxes because you don't even know where the boxes are. (laughs) And even if you did know, you don't have a pencil to check them. (laughs) We don't have the ability to obey all of these laws. In chapters 6 and 7, Jesus goes to the other parts of life. He, says, he talks about giving to the needy and prayer and fasting and where your treasure is. He talks about anxiety in life and judging others wrongly. And you, you say, how are we supposed to be able to do all of this? Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. God gives us good things when we ask him. And so we're to treat other people the way we're to be, that we want to be treated in the the golden rule that goes farther than any other version of the golden rule that Jesus talks about. He acknowledges that this is hard, but it's the easy way that leads to destruction in chapter seven. But in case we're thinking Jesus is saying, well, you've got to earn your way. You've got to do all these things perfectly. Your righteousness has to exceed the scribes and Pharisees. And that comes from you working and trying really hard. In chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, he reveals, well, really, this is all just fruit. This is fruit of what's happening in you. You can recognize whether people are ravenous wolves or God's sheep by the fruit that they exhibit. All that he's been talking about. It's not all about works because people with the best kinds of works in verses 21 to 23 will be cast out. Jesus, look at all the wonderful things we did in your name. Look at all the things we did and the things we said. And look, look, look at us, look at our works. Jesus says, I never knew you. They didn't come to him through faith. They tried to come to him through their works. So listen to what he says in verses 24 to 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. He says, you've got to hear, you've got to believe it and act on it. And we've been talking about that is what faith is. 
You hear the truth, you believe the truth, and you act on it. You don't just hear a bunch of laws and say, okay, I'm going to start working on these laws, and it's going to be all about rules and doing things. It's the hearing, the believing, and doing. It's not just the doing. Now, there's so much more that we could say to to study it, but Jesus shows us how far away we are from obeying the full law of God, abiding by all of the words and doing all of the words written in the book of the law. Back in Galatians. Even if we were to take just one commandment and we were to strive with everything we had and exert all of our energies to fulfill one commandment, we'd still come up short. We just can't do it. It's a universal curse. But again, back in Galatians, we'll continue with B, verse 11. And the unlimited inclusion. The unlimited inclusion. Not only are we under the same curse, all of us are included. It's evident and it's clear, Paul says, it's obvious by now that no one is justified before God by the law. Not just because of the universal curse, but because everyone is included within that curse from sin. It's so unlimited in our inclusion that in it, that all of us who have ever tried to be justified before God have failed. Psalm 143.2 says, no one living is righteous before you. Like we said, There's so much bad news here. (laughs) There's so much of this just stark reality of darkness that we need to be made aware of. Not out there in the world, that's true, but in us. We've got to be awakened out of our false thinking and wrong beliefs. This is not a one-time thing that we we are supposed to be struggling with and and thinking about. Justification is one time, amen? I mean, when we we believe in Jesus Christ, we've turned from our sins, and we believe in him, God justifies us. We are made new, regenerated, and that's a one-time thing. Praise God for that. But as we talked about, we still have this flesh that constantly pulls us to go back to the works of the law. We still need to struggle against the works of the law because we think we can rely on those. We're constantly tempted to go back to the wrong thinking and works and not faith. We think about works. We depend on works. We think we're justified before God because of our works. That's wrong. And it's impossible but it's impossible for us to grow in our faith before God by works. It's impossible for us to be sanctified and to continue on. None of it happened and it doesn't stay true of us because of our works. So then who can be saved? Who is saved? He says, those who are righteous. How do you become righteous? We're declared righteous by faith. And again, Paul turns to the Old Testament scriptures for this answer. He quotes Habakkuk. So let's look at Habakkuk. Go to Habakkuk in the Old Testament in chapter 1. So we can see the wonderful truths of God. God is going to teach Habakkuk about faith, and it's for our instruction as well. It's so helpful for us because when you look at this world, do you ever question, God, why are things like this? Why are things going like this? What is wrong with everything? I mean, God, aren't you in control and aren't you sovereign? And and how is this happening? How are these things coming about? Do you ever wonder, God, why are you allowing all of this to happen? It's a question that comes from faith. It starts with faith. If if there was no faith, you wouldn't be asking the sovereign God, you know, and asking him, "You're, you're sovereign, right? Why aren't you fixing things? How come it's all going the way that it's going? Habakkuk asked this same question. In Habakkuk 1, beginning in verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and will you not hear? 
or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. It's like he's, it's like he's describing our day with justice not around and with violence and, and wickedness just running amok. It's, it's, he's asking God, how can you let this go? When are you going to fix this? Verse 5, God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. He says, I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> You're not going to get it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. He says in verse 6, he's, and, and, and continuing through verse 11, I'm raising up the, the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans with the Babylonians were the ones who were going to come into the land. They were going to wipe out the land. They were going to destroy the temple, burn down everything, exile the people of Israel out of the land. Now, we think a lot of times, you know, if God would just tell us what's going to happen or what he's doing, then we would understand and we'd be better off. But God wasn't wrong. <laughs> we don't get it. If he were to tell us what he's doing, we would, ah, uh, that's what Habakkuk does. He goes, ah, uh, <laughs> I don't understand God. Look at verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God? How You're bringing the, Chal the Chaldeans and, and the Babylonians, my holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you look idly at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He says, you know, God, how could you possibly use the Chaldeans? I mean, I was looking around at Israel and things were bad, and I asked when you were going to do something, and you said you were going to bring the Chaldeans. How could you bring them? <laughs> This is even worse. I, I don't get it. I don't understand. And we're wondering, with Habakkuk, we're trying to figure out what's happening in life. So Habakkuk describes the Chaldeans for God in the following verses, in case he didn't know about him. You know, don't you know how bad they are and how evil the, Chal the Chaldeans are? What, I mean, how could you do any of this? He says in chapter 2, verse 1, I'll, I'll, I will take my stand at my watch post. You know, I'm just going to wait here. God... When you figure out the answer, because I'm sure I've asked a question you haven't thought about, you know, I'm sure I've seen things you haven't seen. When you figure it out, I'll be, I'll be waiting here. You come back and tell me. That's what Habakkuk says to God. Go ahead and explain. I'll wait here. In chapter 2, verses 2 through 20, God answers. And he gives Habakkuk a series of five woes to the Chaldeans because of their wickedness. He's going to judge them. God's the sovereign one. He's using them to punish his people, Israel. But they're sinning and they will be judged as well. So we've got to learn better than to question God. It ends with this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Nobody can question any of God's ways. Nobody can question what God's doing rightly. But it's not the prideful who know that and learn that. It's the faithful. Look back at verse 4 of chapter 2 for this contrast. God says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. There's the prideful one in this world. His soul is not upright. And on the other side is the one who lives by faith. That's the one who's righteous. So chapter three is Habakkuk's response of faith to God. He says in verse one, this is my prayer. In verse two, he says, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. He says, you're right to have wrath, but please remember mercy in your wrath. And he goes on to list some of the mighty works of God that caused a healthy, proper fear of God in verses 3 through 16. But the result of all of that in his prayer is verse 16, where he says, yet I will quietly wait 
for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. His faith before was looking at all the injustice. And it was questioning when God would do something. What are you going to do? Now he knows God's going to do something. He's never stopped doing everything. But rather than complain about the way things are, rather than complain about how God's running things, he says, I will be quiet. There's a growth in faith there. But that's not the end or the fullness of his faith. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk knew some really, really hard times were coming for them. He knew that Israel was wrong and they were going to be judged. There was not going to be any food to eat. The grocery stores would have empty shelves. Before the time of grocery stores, it was all the food that was in the field. He said, if all the food is gone, his faith did not teach him to panic. He said, that stuff's coming. It didn't teach him to run all over the place and, God, I better start prepping. I better start grabbing all the stuff I can and trying to get ready because that bad, hard time is coming. His faith didn't teach him that. It didn't say, well, it's going to be hard. And when it gets hard, I can just say, well, I knew it. I knew it was coming. (laughs) I tried to tell everybody. His faith said, I will rejoice in the Lord and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He is my strength. This is the faith of the righteous that's not self-dependent. This is the faith that doesn't say, okay, I have to do this, and God, please enable me to do this. This is the faith that says, God can do this, God does this, and God will do this. The faith of the righteous is a life faith that encompasses every part of life. It says, I can't do it. I can't do any of it. I can't do anything. This is the faith that God gives and God uses to save sinners. It is evident, Paul says, that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Every part of our life will be consumed with faith in Jesus. Faith in Christ alone. Not in what I'm doing and what I can do and what I should do and what I might do. We we can see it, we can hear it from ourselves when we're asking, am I doing enough? Should I do more? Should I do this? Should I not do that? This is the only way to recognize that no one can do it, but God can and does and will. And it's faith in him. So the bad news is the universal curse and the unlimited inclusion. There's a final truth in this part of the paragraph, and it's unconditioned captivity. Unconditioned captivity in verse 12. The righteous live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Do you hear that absolute separation? There's law and there's faith, and they don't meet they don't meet anywhere in the middle. They're separate. I used to think, you know, I believe in Jesus, but just to be safe, I'll make sure to do good things. So that in case that's the standard, if we get to the end and I have to have good works, well, I did have some. <laughs> and they'll, hopefully they'll outweigh the bad. I, I used to think I'll just have that backup plan, but there's no backup plan. <laughs> it's exclusively faith. Every time we turn to works, brothers and sisters, this is what we need to hear and understand because we think that way so, so many times. We think that way so often. I'll just be, you know, it'll be okay because when I love the Lord, then I'll try to obey more and then I'll have good works and then maybe that will work out. But he tells us in his word that when we turn to works, we're turning away from faith. We're not doing both. 
we may not see it or think about it this way, but we've got to see that it's a very serious thing to turn away from faith and to turn to works. In fact, it's as serious as sin itself. Anything that is not of faith is works, it's sin, it's flesh. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If it doesn't come from faith, it's sin. No, no, it's good works. I'm just trying to hedge my bets. I'm just trying to you know, make myself just in a better position just in case. No, that's not what the word says. It is turning away from faith and working, which is sin. We either turn to faith or we turn to our own efforts. You're, you've got a choice to make. And he's already made it very clear. It's evident, he said, that we can't get there through our works. As we've said, and as we'll see here in Galatians, turning to Jesus in, in, in faith does not mean disobeying in every way and, and not, not thinking about obedience at all, like, like the law doesn't matter. It means that our life, instead of being all about our works and what we're doing and not doing, is all about Jesus. And when our life is all about Jesus, when our life is all about faith in Jesus, then what he calls us to do, we'll do as he enables, as he empowers. And that leads us to obedience because he's our audience. He's the one we're pleasing. And when we turn back to works, our life becomes all about those works. That's what this quote is. The one who does them shall live by them. We're in captivity to the law, to the law and to our works. When we turn away from faith, he says, you're going to stay there then. It's going to entrap you in a whole life. It's going to encompass your entire life. Leviticus 18.5 is the quote. And in there, it was a positive sense when God says, you're coming into the physical land, do my works and, and live that way for that obedience in, in the land. But this is, this is a very not positive, a very negative sense here the, for the spiritual understanding of this, that, that we don't live our life entrapped in trying to obey every law that comes around. It'll just be consumed by law and rules. That's how you can tell. That's how you can, when you hear yourself thinking things like that, like we said before, am, am I doing enough? Do I need to do more? You know, I messed up over here. What do I need to do now because I messed up over there? These are some of the questions that we ask. And or when, you, when we have our list of achievements, you know, I, I go to church and I give and I teach and I serve and I, I did this and I didn't do that and I could have done that. But, you know, God, aren't you happy with me? Aren't you glad with me? Because all we're doing is asking I's and me's. <laughs> I need to. Should I? Do I? What about me? And there's not much Jesus in any of those questions. It's either law or works. And every time we don't live by faith, we're living in works. We're in unconditioned captivity apart from Jesus. There's no escape. There's no way out. But verse 13, and we can't get to it this morning, but I want to at least read it because I don't want to leave you on that negative note of all of this bad news, of all of the bad news that we're all inside this curse and we're all, none of us are excluded and, and it's a captivity of life. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. More on that next week. It's such a blessing to be able to think through and see and read through the word of God to see the truth. It, it's scary at first. It, it, it's negative and it's, it's discouraging at first. I, I can't do it. This is, it it's, it's hard. It's judgment that's coming. But then it's blessing upon blessing upon blessing when we read about what Jesus has done for us this life of faith that he's called us to. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are the perfect God. Lord, in no way have you ever sinned. Lord, in no way will you ever sin when you, when you bring to an end this world and, and time. 
God, you'll, you'll call all people to yourself, Lord, and, and you will call every person into judgment before you. And when you hand out a judgment of eternal, eternal punishment, God, even then it will not be sin. It will not be wrong. It will be justice. But God, when you hand out that declaration of righteousness by those who should be under your punishment, under that, under that, guilty, that guilty place, Lord, of punishment forever, Lord, you, you hand out that righteousness, that, that we are righteous with Jesus' complete and perfect righteousness. Father, what a, what a celebration of joy that will be. Lord, what a time of rejoicing in our Savior. What a time, God, to know who you are and to praise you forever. God, we look forward to that time. Father, we are looking forward to the return of our Savior. Lord, we do look around in this world and we see a mess. We see things, so many things that are beautiful and so many things that, that are praiseworthy of you. And Lord, we see so many ways that mankind messes things up. Lord, we see so much sin and we see it just celebrated and it runs rampant, but God, it grieves us to see it when it happens in ourselves. Father God, I pray that you would show each of us where we need to repent, where we need to, as we sung earlier, slay that sin, kill that sin, Father. That we would hate what you hate and we would love what you love. God, give us that love that we need for you and for others. Lord, help us to have the opportunities, Lord, and, and the boldness to speak this clarity, this truth into the lives of others. God, there is no other foundation. There is no other place where we can find clarity and truth, eternal, everlasting truth, but your word. God, we praise you. We exalt you. Our great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we, we ask all of this in his name. Amen.